0: It's time for Governance by Grace. Welcome to Grace Arkey with Jim Babka. Jim, I never thought I'd be talking to you about this. The Federal Election Campaign Act of what, like 1974 or 5?
1: Yeah, it's early, It's pre-Watergate and then the Supreme Court rules upon it in Buckley
0: versus Vallejo. So it's right before and right after. That's right around. So everybody was paying attention to Watergate, right? And And that was me. But oh my gosh, this monster is back and it's biting us all over the place. And I think what I want to do to set up this episode is to point out that this sort of ancient history in the legal system is being used today, right now, by individuals inside the government to and the media let's put the media in there too to hound out of office and pursue to the death individuals who are not towing the line in washington is that a fair assessment
1: i think it is and and to get to that point you have to you're going to need to watch this and the episode to follow because we're going to actually introduce you to a human figure who was the victim of that system and yes. And so, but today, obviously, the person that,
0: that is in the crosshairs is Donald J. Trump. Correct. Who? Not a supporter. But this is illustrative of the, the way that the FECA is being used to, um, to destroy lives. And, you know, Trump's probably got enough in the bank to be able to survive this. But that's not the point. The, the point is that this is... No, it's oh, not, not the point. Fallacious, this is insidious. This is intentional yep. in a big way. And uh, dude, take it away. So
1: right up front, I want to tell anybody the time they're going to spend with us here today, however long the clock ends up running, the time that you're going to spend with us today, you will learn something. You'll learn something you didn't know before, more than likely. You'll actually maybe even learn lots of things you didn't know before. And when you're done, you're going to have the ability to analyze and assess news stories going forward, not just about Donald J. Trump, but about any candidate, Republican or Democrat that is in the government. Uh, crosshairs due to campaign finance laws. You're going to know things about those cases and what's being said that don't get talked about because frankly, the reporters covering the story don't even know it. But I want to add the following disclaimer to what it is that I'm saying here today. This is not about, uh, we're not covering the fraud. We're not covering any instance of lying to Congress. We're not talking about any of the tax charges that may end up being a part of this indictment or this case because they're not actually in the indictment. Uh, We are uh, we're not dealing with whether or not Trump is a huckster. We're not dealing with whether or not we agree or disagree with him. Donald Trump is not who I voted for for president on either occasion. I would not vote for him again. I did not vote for Joe Biden. I did not vote for Hillary Clinton. I will not vote for the Democratic nominee in 2024. So I want to be very clear here. I'm not. This is not a political dog in a fight, and this is not about Donald J. Trump. This is about something bigger here. It's way because deeper. Yeah because I think when when you bring up Trump people tend to get emotional. And neither of us are pro Trump and I'm not defending any team. So um there is a claim that people want the rule of law here and and even more so they want then to have him prosecuted and I'm going to suggest that those two things can
0: be mutually exclusive here. So this is this is going to be heavy lifting so people listen listen in carefully you know don't speed this up or go back and listen to it again but once you get this you're going to be blown away by how we the voting public have been bamboozled by thinking we have any power at all
1: okay so this starts off for me personally with with an extreme distaste for campaign finance laws and if you're a challenger and you're running for office The thing that you need the most is money. So there is a secret to defeating incumbent. I've shared this with candidates over the years. I have people in my position as running downsized DC all these years who have repeatedly contacted me and said, Oh, Bill, I'm running for office, right? You call me up and you say, I'm running for office. And then I invariably ask them, How's your fundraising going?
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) And they they say to me, Oh, that's not going to be an issue because I've been talking to everybody and everybody hates the incumbent. Now, those people, I know are already doomed and they're going to lose I mean, and, and they do, they lose epically all the time. Good people, like really good people. Yeah, maybe. But my point is they're just not prepared. They're not willing to do what it takes. Mm -hmm. And what it takes is a lot of fundraising. What does, what's the goal of fundraising? How does it work? So here's the secret. I'm going to start off right off the beginning of the show with a big secret. Here's the secret to defeating an incumbent. You ready? Yeah, hit me. You have to force, you have to spend enough money so that they are compelled to reach into their war chest and start spending money shooting you back. And the more they shoot you back, the better your chance of winning that race. Now, the threshold for having enough money to get them to start paying any attention to you and start considering you a threat and start shooting you back is pretty immense. And most campaigns don't reach it. And so the incumbent naturally wins. And it is far easier to raise money as an incumbent because you have influence to peddle and sell. So even people who don't support you know that they need to keep their bread buttered and they will give money to you just to have access. Money does not buy votes, but it does buy access. Yes. So that's, that's how the game works. And I can get into the intricacies of of, of that. And maybe in some other episode, I will, I can explain you how that all works, what all the mechanics of that are. But that just that general pretext that if you want to defeat somebody, you have to raise enough money to do it. I know and this is why we have campaign finance laws, right? The, we have campaign finance laws so that that doesn't happen. They place a limit on the on the uh, on the contribution that can be raised. When limits are placed on the contributions that need to be raised, the game becomes raising more of them. And that's a lot harder for the challenger to do than it is sure. for the incumbent who can use a process deal. I call clustering. Where they they literally you know bunch all the contributions together with the source code, and they know who basically was responsible for raising that money. Now, there's a really interesting historical case. Have you heard of the name Eugene McCarthy?
0: Is this like uh, you know the whole uh, red threat thing in Congress? No, that was
1: the other. That was another McCarthy. Eugene McCarthy was on the political left. He was a senator in the 1960s. And when Robert F. Kennedy would not run against Lyndon Johnson in 1968 on the issue of the Vietnam War, Eugene McCarthy took up the charge and we had the the get clean with Gene kids, right? Gene McCarthy's campaigning and uh, Robert Newman was touring with them. Okay. Let me give you a little history. This is untold history that people don't know. Let me give you a little history. McCarthy challenges Johnson in uh, the New Hampshire primary. And he doesn't win, Bill. But he scares the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, with how well he does. He gets close enough that by two things happen in March of of 1968. First, Robert F. Kennedy suddenly changes his mind, goes, Oh, I don't have to wait till 1972 to run for an open seat. I can I this guy's vulnerable. I'm going to get in the race. And several days later, The president gives a national address where he says very famously that he will not stand for election. He would not accept the nomination if it was offered to him of his party. He was not seeking another term as president of the United States. He drops out. Eugene McCarthy did that. Would you like to know how? Would you like to know what he did? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So the very first thing is that he runs the first modern TV ad campaign in the history of the New Hampshire primary. TV ads cost money, don't they? He had one donor who gave him a very large, significant contribution, way more even in 1968 than what is legal today, okay? And inflation adjusted, it would be well over a million. Like it's, it's, it's a lot of money he put in. But he gives him that seed money to get this going and to run this TV ad campaign. And the TV ad business wasn't the same as it is now, Candidates weren't using it the same way in the New Hampshire primary. And that was his secret. So to be clear, to bring this full circle, because we're talking about campaign finance, right? If voting was uh, if it was effective, it would be illegal. I, 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 This is an example of this happening, right? They went to work on passing an act. And they managed to do so before the next presidential election was completed to make sure that nobody could do what Gene McCarthy did ever again ever, ever again, they limited the contributions from individuals and they bent themselves into pretzels to do it. Now, my distaste for all of this comes from the fact that in 2000, I was working for the libertarian nominee for uh, for president. His name was Harry Brown and I was his press secretary. And we had decided that we needed to challenge the campaign finance laws because we knew that there were donors out there who, by the way, weren't giving anything who, because they realized their donations were gonna be ineffective. So they would have been willing, we had the resources, we had the connections, to give six and even, in a couple of cases, seven-figure checks. It would have made all the difference in the world because our goal was to get him on the debate stage. And could we have done enough to get him on the debate stage? Well, he was the greatest libertarian candidate in the history of the party. He's one of the greatest candidates ever. He looked like he walked out of central casting and he was imminently prepared for every interview. He was a soundbite master and he spoke to the people directly in terms of their benefit. He was just excellent at his job. And if if we could have done what we needed to do financially, if we weren't hobbled by these contribution limits. So we actually considered that year Um, actively considered. We consulted attorneys. uh, We we wrote up a legal plan and we even announced that we were going to pursue not registering with the FEC. We were going to purposely violate the law to create an automatic challenge that we could take into the the court system on First Amendment grounds. That's brilliant, man. But we weren't able to do it because we didn't quite have the financial resources to pull off what we needed to do. And we had some internal opposition in our party. I won't belabor that point, but that was what we were intending to do. Ever since then, I've wanted to do something. So in 2001, I was involved in the formation of a group called realcampaignreform.org. realcampaignreform.org is the predecessor organization to DownsizedDC.org. The formation of DownsizedDC.org took place after we went to the U.S. Supreme Court. We were in, we took a campaign finance case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I'm sad to say we lost, but we never left the fight. We filed amicus briefs and other relevant cases, And one of our partners in that Supreme Court case, we had, uh, there were three of us, fundamentally, four of us, fundamentally financing the case. We were the largest funder. We had two other partner funders who put in an identical amount of tens of thousands of dollars. And one of them was a little known group called Citizens United. And Citizens United did not leave the field, as we all know. They showed up in a 2010 case, making some of the arguments we pioneered then, right? right? And we've talked about that case and we can talk about it elsewhere. Um, it's about a movie. I don't want to belabor Citizens United. You may have an opinion about it, but we could do an entire episode on that, frankly, um, what people don't know about that case. So th- this is, we are in, but I'm I'm proud of, that, of what we've been able to accomplish in this area since losing that Supreme Court case. But it was motivated by the fact that I recognized my Libertarian candidate can't compete because the rules are rigged to advantage incumbency and people who are connected to the media. Because the media pays incredible attention to how much money a campaign is capable of raising and before it considers that campaign relevant.
0: Makes perfect sense to me for all the reasons you've just pointed out in the Gene McCarthy uh, TV yes. ad, pioneering, yes. Yep, all right. So uh,
1: I'm gonna make a constitutional argument to start off with. We will go through some of the other arguments as well, but I wanna start off with a constitutional argument. And I wanna say, Uh, five things about reading the constitution, how to do it. Okay. First, there is a truth about deliberative bodies. This is the case that we made in the court when we were standing in front of the district court on the way to the Supreme court. There's a truth about deliberative bodies. And that is that they pour over every word. They obsess. If you've ever been in a meeting, of bylaws committee of some kind, you're writing some kind of constitution, you're trying to send out a group letter, you know that every word is poured over carefully and that there's literally debates and arguments that occur over the nuances or subtle ways that people uh, phrase things. So this is what a committee does. So every word of the constitution matters. It has weight. It's there for a reason. It was poured over. Second, the the First Amendment begins with the following phrase. You ready? Oh, Congress shall, this. Congress no shall law. make no law, make no, no law. law. Okay, and I'm 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 at pains to ask, like like if I were the president of the United States and uh, somebody was sitting here before me to wants to be a federal judge, I might say to them, uh, uh, "What part of no law do you not understand? Or what does the term no law mean? Like, if they can't get that fundamental thing out, right? Okay, but they yeah. don't. Trust me, we don't have all the time to get in all of it, but we will be able to illustrate a tiny bit of that today." Three in language, we have two two th- concepts that that uh, we use routinely in our our written communication. The first one is a conjunction you know and or but yet these are all conjunct can all be conjunctions, right And they indicate something. they either join or they separate items. So if you have an and, you're you're saying pl- this plus this if you have an or you're saying this, or, you know, different, rather, that,
0: right? Yeah. You're Anybody who's coding cons- understands this. They understand how this works logically. It's it's, okay. it's obvious. Okay.
1: So in the First Amendment, there are rights that are distinguished by conjunctions, and the conjunction they chose to use was or, which indicates that these are different things. We yes. also know that these things are real because they're each preceded by a definite article, the, indicating that there's something. Okay? Yes. In fact, I you walk around saying you're Bill protsman but if I say you're the Bill Protzman, right? We that is a more specific thing,
0: is it not? Way different, way different. Okay, so and we by have, the way, just so you know, I am the Bill Protzman. <laughs> <laughs> so we have we
1: can look at the the, the the plain text reading of the First Amendment and say there is the freedom of speech, or or indicating difference, the freedom of the press, right? Which brings Mm -hmm. us to our next point. Speech and press are two different things. So you say to me, Jim, what is speech? What is press? Oh, so speech is not what we're doing right now. It might look like it. And lots of people get this confused, even amongst the experts. There's FEC guys that don't understand this. There's there's people in the Supreme Court that haven't understood this over the years. You will hear people always talk about free speech issues. And then they'll say something stupid. And I'm going to prove how stupid in just a moment. They'll say something stupid like, money isn't speech. Well, okay. The way they mean it, they're, they mean it in the stupid way. That's actually technically true. Money isn't speech because that's the point. Like you can go stand on, you can grab a soapbox and stand on a street corner. You don't even need a, a, a soapbox. You don't even need a street corner. You could go and talk right now, anytime you want, you can just utter words, that speech. And we're saying that type of speech is, is protected. But we say there's another speech preceded by a definite article. It's separated by OR, so we know it's something else. We call this type of communication press. Now, at the time of the founding, that meant a printing press. But we have evolved and we have developed new technologies, and it now includes broadcasting technologies. The act we are involved in here today is a press act. We are broadcasting. Publishing and broadcasting are the press acts. and and. What I mean by that is this is not just uttering something. This is not shouting something in a crowded theater, as they like to say. This is a planned communication and the planned communication costs money. So for you to receive it, everybody who's listening right now, you have to have some device to be able to do that. And that costs somebody some money. Maybe you didn't pay for it, but maybe your parents did or maybe your work did or something else, but it costs somebody some money. And then on, on our end, we have cameras. We have lights. We have to pay for electricity. We have to have these, we have to have microphones, and on and on we go. And all of that costs money too. And then it goes on a platform that also costs money to run. Now, I'll be honest, we're not paying YouTube or any of the podcasting hosts uh any fees at this juncture uh to disseminate our information, but they're definitely spending money to do it, and we're utilizing those platforms. We have a stage on which we're able to do that. All of these things cost money, and that is the difference between a speech and a press
0: right. So that, just so I'm clear on this, so speech, anybody can say anything for free, it doesn't matter. Press is a concerted, monetized effort where you put money into it to invest in your presentation of what you are about to say and sometimes get paid for it. Yes.
1: And then to add to that, there is a rich history that goes back pre-founding where the king, and this actually happened, attempted to license the Stamp Act. He attempted to license the press. Sure. So licensing the press is what's called a prior restraint. And our constitution is making clear that this is illegal. You cannot have a prior restraint on press communications. You can't Oh yeah, that doesn't
0: happen anymore in the United States, does it? (laughs) No, that's exactly what this, so (laughs) this
1: ends up being the first, you know, kind of foot in the door exception, right? And, but you can't do it. Now, we went to the Supreme Court and we made a novel argument. And in 2001, it was very hard to, you know, back then it was still these big media conglomerates and we had newspapers in every city. And so the press was some professional association, some kind of guild, right? And so the the right wasn't being treated as an individual, right? It was being treated as a right for institutions that had invested really significant amount of funds. So if you had an amateur reporter who was doing things, they would say, well, you're not a real reporter because you've got another job and you don't have these resources and blah, blah, They would find ways to dismiss that. And that was actually legitimately, these were actual uh, arguments that were used at the time. I don't want to call them legitimate, but they were actually considered legitimate at the time and they were used. The line has been much more clearly blurred now. We argued that th- then that this was an individual right that was possessed by you and everyone else. You could set up a press tomorrow and abandon it the day after, but the day that you do it, you had a press right. And you always had that press right, and a prior restraint could not be uh, be placed upon you. And if it could, it could be placed on the New York Times. And if 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 the New York Times didn't have to, to report its investors and its, its expenses the same way that a campaign does, that was to us illegitimate. This is unfair playing field. The, the this is an individual right. Now it's much more obvious because, frankly podcasts and, and youtube tv shows are beating the radio and the television media they're they're getting more audience right now and anybody can set one of these things up and what and this is really bothering the media because they want this all to go away they they've invested all this infra- in their all this infrastructure and basically the media has been uberized
0: yeah tell me what you mean by that we're all ride sharing news Right. I'm here doing it. And I watch other
1: podcasts that are doing it. And I hope some of them are starting to watch me. You see what I'm saying? Like we're all able to do this and this is not my full-time job. Okay. I actually have four other jobs that I do that are ahead of this one. Okay. So uh, the last point I want to make is free association. We have the ability, and I just want to make this real quick. You and I have the ability to associate with people, but we also have the ability to choose not to associate with people. That's what a free association right grants you. Okay. And that's a, that is a right, a right. Yes. So what we do in private, so long as we're not committing a criminal conspiracy to do something to harm others on the outside, is only the business of the people we choose to disclose it to. And if that chooses to be no one, that's nobody else's business. Therefore, ergo, in this context, if I give you money, Bill, in your campaign for Congress, and I say, Shh, "Don't tell anybody," morally and ethically, you can talk about whether or not there should be sunlight and all the rest of it. We can have that debate, but from a strict constructionist view not the federal government's business. I'm with you on that. Yeah. What I'm saying here, if I were to wrap this up, if I were to go even more fundamental than the constitution, if I would go back even before that, I would say when we, we can determine what is or what is not a crime based on whether it picks someone's pocket or breaks their legs. In other words, did it steal from somebody? Did it take, did it damage somebody's property or did it harm somebody physically? And if it didn't do those two things, it is not the government's job. And in particular here, we've just outlined, it's not the federal government's job to regulate that activity. But of course, incumbents responding to pressure from the media primarily, because that's who's mostly behind these campaign finance laws. That's The, 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 the Bipartisan Campaign For- Reform Act, better known as McCain-Feingold, which is what we were fighting in the Supreme Court, uh, was entirely a Potemkin village put on by uh, the regime media. Uh, Tim Russer, to meet the press, was one of the key players at the time. They were trying to make this an issue. They were trying to even help John McCain, who was trying to capitalize on this to, after a failed presidential campaign in 2000, as he was rehabilitating himself. This was part of his effort, was to show that he was a, a man of the people, and he got the media on his side by doing this. They were the primary drivers behind this because they don't
0: want people competing with their narrative. So let me understand here. Um, I'm John McCain. I'm running for president. I'm not the John McCain, but pretend, okay? So we're clear (laughs) on the article. (laughs) Right. Um, And I get a donation from you. And you say, don't tell anyone that this donation from me to you was made to help your campaign for president. Do I have a responsibility as the candidate to disclose you? No. To... Okay, no, you do not have a responsibility. Now, the market may demand
1: such, and you may want to do so. You may say, hey, listen, I'm the sunshine candidate, and my opponent's h- hiding all of his donors. I'm going to put all mine out in the sunshine, and that would give you a competitive advantage. Now, he may not want you to maintain that advantage. So maybe he says, I'm going to start to do the same thing. And if the voters were insisting upon this, if this was de rigueur, like there was a long period of time in this country where being, uh, till FDR... Everybody understood that two terms was what a president served, but then he broke right. with that tradition, and he was able to do it because that's what the voters ultimately decided they wanted to do. But then they made a law t- to to prohibit it. But for how long did that tradition stand? There's no no bind here. I mean, you could sit there and throw mud at your candidate at the other candidate all day and imply that if he's unwilling to defend himself, you could even imply who his donors are. And he's going to say they're not. Well, prove it, right? This could be a legitimate campaign issue that's actually part of the public discourse. And I suspect that in this day and age, with all of the information systems we have, that campaigns would be strongly incentivized to disclose this information. They wouldn't need the federal government to do it. And I actually think that we would do a better job of knowing what was in that information. The way that the law is written right now, it's written for the benefit of incumbents. So when I talked earlier about the ease with which uh, fundraising is done by uh, uh, incumbents as opposed to challengers, if, if... there's a piece of information that's not disclosed when those incumbents are raising money. So they go to an event like they're in town and, 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 and a chicken dinner is put on and they go to the chicken dinner and they give a, a speech for 15 minutes or whatever about what they're going to do for this group. And everybody in the room writes a check. And then those checks are all assembled in one way, shape or form. Maybe it's put on the check itself or maybe it's put in a, they're Paul put in an envelope or whatever, but there's a source code put on them. And when they're entered into the campaigns log, they record the source code. So, uh, you know, Music Morphic, your company, uh, sets up a fundraiser, uh, you, you have the Music Morphic Alliance. So you have all these other people who are into music therapy and music and the use of music for, for personal healing and growth. And so those individuals uh, all, all, all the people are involved in that comm and they all write max checks, right? And maybe there's 30 of them or whatever. So the campaign walks out with a chunk of change, but they know that there's some kind of source code that basically says, well, Bill Protzman's the guy that made this all happen. And when it comes to when Bill Protzman comes calling, that information is not disclosed in FEC reports. Why? Because it's an incumbent tool, right? Yes. Yes, and so they don't disclose it, and so campaigns are able to get away with. And this happens a lot, where we're like, "Well, I'm following all the regulations. I've disclosed all this, right?" They don't right. have to disclose anything else. There's no challenge for them to disclose anything else, and it doesn't become an issue. I, I, I really do think the FEC and this lack make things worse in terms of us getting sunlight
0: and information. Yeah, I have to agree with you, but it's not illegal to do that. No, it's not illegal to hide your donors. And I'm going to say it that way. So it, the law allows us to hide our donors. Federal law, uh, even though it's probably not the greatest thing for complete transparency, and it certainly helps incumbents and hurts challengers.
1: Well, we're able to hide the sources of the donors. The donors, their names themselves, still have to be disclosed in these FEC reports. But I want to add one more thing because we've gone, we've 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 moved from my history to the Constitution uh, up to a more fundamental level as to whether or not something is or is not actually a crime that the government can even be involved in in the first place. But I want to say also that defrauding, in the political sense, is not a crime. And I'm not making some kind of principled argument here. I'm talking about like literally gravity. Like, if lying, if a politician lying was a crime, who amongst the politicians would not be in jail? Yeah, good point. Okay, they 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 lie repeatedly and they don't deliver on their promises. So we can't say that defrauding uh, voters. Not sharing information with voters is a crime. We cannot say that because they cover up and lie all the time. It's happening literally in the news every single day. We could come, we're, we've could we talked about some of them on the show. We'll talk about other things on the show where they have not told the truth. And yet fraud is
0: fungible legally. Uh, say what you mean by that, by that. Okay, so, you know, I can decide that hiding donors is fraud, Or I can decide that hiding donors is totally respectable. Like actually hiding the act of hiding them.
1: Yeah. The source of the donors. I want to be clear on the terms of hiding the source information. You could do that or you could choose to share it. And that's perfect. Either side is perfectly legal right now. Right. But a prosecutor who's a bit ambitious could say, we want to get deeper. And in a particular case, we want to find out what the source is because
0: there actually is no law on this. Right. Although the, okay. the prosecutor can can make up the law as he goes in order to get a hook into someone and open a bigger case, correct?
1: Right. Now, if you just stop here, you will have already learned more than everybody you're watching on television knows. Okay. You're watching NBC, you're watching CNN, you're watching Fox News. I've already told you more than they and the guests they're going to bring in over the next several months as the Trump trial progresses. I've already told you more about how campaign finance works. Uh, the secret to winning is a challenger. Uh, the the difficulties that are faced I've already told you more in just the time that we've covered I, I this this is this is one of the most valuable 25 minute periods that you've ever spent in terms of getting up to speed on how government works okay let's tie this now into, into Donald Trump and what's happening here okay he has essentially been charged 34 consecutive times with only one thing and that is bookkeeping misdemeanors Now they are charging these as felonies and the way that they, in order for these things to actually be felonies, they have to show that this was done in these, these acts in the bookkeeping were done to conceal and cover up a bigger crime. And that's how they had, they convert it to a felony. Now there is talk that there is a way or a pathway of conspiracy there is also talk that there is a way and it was it was in the indictment this was kind of this was probably the only new thing that there might be a tax law that was violated in the process here in the state of New York i have no expertise on either of those things i have no commentary to offer on on either of those things no opinion i'm here strictly to talk about the campaign finance one which is the main one that it leads the indictment it's the one that's led all along and i will tell you the justice department refused to pursue this and the federal election commission both both refused to do it and DA Bragg initially declined to do this too, and then revived this and revisited it and decided to pursue it. He needs for the campaign finance violation, which is at the federal level, not his New York state level. He needs for that to be a felony. He needs that
0: in order for his case to work. So how can you convert a bookkeeping error into a felony? I'm sorry, okay. a bookkeeping uh, choice. So I'm going to
1: quote from reason here Uh, because I like how they phrased and worded this. Falsification of business records become a a class E felony. So it's the lowest grade of felony, but it is a felony now. It's in the felony category. Punishable by up to four years in prison when the defendant's, quote, intent to defraud includes an attempt to commit another crime or aid or conceal the commission thereof. Wants to hide the crime or he's actually carrying out a crime. And that's what the bookkeeping was done for. This is where federal election law comes into play. Federal prosecutors argued that Cohen's payment to Daniels amounted to an excessive campaign contribution. So bill contributions are limited in size. They're a little over 2000, about $2,500 right now. They're inflation adjusted. They go up a little bit uh, every election. Uh, the amount's not important, but it's a, it's a very minor amount. And Cohen's payment obviously was in the six figures, a lot bigger than that. And they finished, they finished by saying, and he accepted that characterization in a 2019 plea agreement. In other words, Cohen said, yes, I made an excessively large campaign contribution
0: to the Trump campaign. That was my motive. Now, and that where... wasn't. I mean, this is a plea. This is a plea bargain, right? So he 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 chose to plead to something that was less criminally uh, harsh, damaging. Yep, damaging. Yeah, than some other charges that they may have. A whole stack
1: on. of them. And yes. and, I'm not going to get too deeply into that because I promise you the regime media and all the Trump supporters and Trump himself will constantly and endlessly explain that. So you don't need to hear it from me. Gotcha. I, I, okay. So the issue here, though, is what is that there's some form of conspiracy happening. And the type that they're talking about is something called a conduit contribution. Yeah, what is now, that? OK, well, it's going to come up in the next interview that we do. We have a we are bringing in a guest for the next show to kind of show how this all works. And his case is remarkably similar in so many ways to what we're witnessing happening in the Donald Trump saga right now. But a conduit contribution means that um, money was given th- from one person to another who then gives it to the campaign. So it's a it's, it's a law. It's a form of money laundering uh, in in the gun realm. If you're buying a gun, they call it uh, a straw purchase where you. Someone buys the gun for you. You give them the money. They go in and buy the gun because they can get it legally. Then they come out and they hand it to you. Yes, Under they're underage, called. and you get you get somebody who's older to go into the liquor store and buy you. There thing. you go. Exactly. Yep. So this that's all a conduit contribution is. Okay, it's a straw purchase. It's going sending somebody with an ID in to get the six pack. That's all but it is.
0: In, the, in that transaction, does the purchaser um, have responsibility for where the money came from? Like if I stole the money and asked you to buy beer for me that'd be different than if I earned the money as a salary and asked you to buy beer for me under the law. Yes. Under the law. Yes. Okay, good. Okay. Now
1: uh, what we have to look at here is whether or not this actually was a contribution. And I'm going to offer you something that has been shared with me by an attorney by the name of Jeremiah Morgan. And Jeremiah Morgan is familiar with a set of cases and wrote an essay uh, that we're going to link to in the American conservative in 2018. But I happen to know Jeremiah. I've known him for, over two decades. And he was actually one of the background attorneys uh, in our Supreme Court case. He was he was involved in, in some of the legal research and development of that case. So uh, he identified that, that nobody's actually talking about what actually constitutes a contribution here. So this will be, again, something you're going to hear here, but you're not going to get very many other places, if at all. You're definitely not going to get it off of the regime media. A contribution. Is, and this is the exact definition any gift, subscription, loan, advance, or deposit of money, or anything of value made by any person. That's part one. Part two, for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office. Pay attention to the for the purpose of influencing part. An expenditure, a campaign expenditure, is any purchase, payment, distribution, loan, advance, deposit, or gift of money, or anything else made by any person. Quote, pay attention to this part, for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office. Okay? Wait a minute, they're the same thing. They're very similar definitions, but what we're saying here is influence has to be part of the equation. Okay? Okay. Influence has to be part of the equation. So then what constitutes influence? What do contributions, these contributions, influence? So now we go back to the federal campaign, federal election campaign act. And the case that the Supreme Court adjudicated where the law was finally etched in stone, so to speak. And we are living under this law. There's been some modifications above it along the way, but we've been living under this law since then. So Buckley versus Vallejo is very, very important. There's this concept called narrow tailoring. So where the Supreme Court uh, believes that they have to violate the Constitution because of some exigent reason, right? They do so in a way where they expressly and purposely narrowly tailor to just to solve the particular problem that they want so that they can leave the right as much intact as possible. Now, this might sound completely wrong to you. It does to me. I already explained what I think the plain words of the document say, but in Buckley versus Vallejo and in subsequent campaign finance law, our Supreme Court and our federal courts have consistently ruled that the government has a uh, compelling state interest. This is a legal phrase. It's a term of art a compelling state interest in protecting the reputation of the government. In other words, they need you to believe in the confidence game that they've got going on, and they can't have you stop believing it. So they have to make elections look legitimate. They have to make the process look legitimate. This was necessary to protect the reputation of our democratic process, these violations of the First Amendment. So they wanted to narrow as much as possible. They didn't want to harm the First Amendment. They wanted to just focus in on the specific issues. So when the Federal Election Campaign Act was passed, for example, There were certain expenditure rules that got dropped in Buckley versus Vallejo. They said those don't narrowly tailor. They're too broad. They impact the expression, uh, the First Amendment expression too much. And um, there was also a a, a rule having to do with whether or not uh, it limited everybody. And the Supreme Court said, no, if a candidate's running for office, he can't be corrupting himself by giving his own money to his own campaign, because what they were trying to deal with was something called the appearance of corruption. And there is no appearance of corruption. You cannot literally bill bribe yourself. And the Supreme Court recognized that. And so they took that out of the act as well and said that a campaign can do it, can can do this. So this opened the door for some of these millionaire and billionaire candidacies that we've seen over the years, these vanity candidacies. Uh, Steve Forbes uh, did it very famously. Um, There's been a whole host of other, Ross Perot. There's been other people have been able to do this because they have the resource to do it. Ross Perot was not limited. But if if the law would have stood in full, he would have been. He would not have been able to give money to his own campaign. But they said, no, if we're protecting the appearance of corruption, which was the narrow thing that they were doing, then they had to make sure that all the remedies were also narrowly tailored. This is not an insignificant thing now. Again, we don't want to see the First Amendment blown away. So um, they were concerned about the purposes of influencing the election. And they determined to keep this narrowly tailored that it could only be applied to electoral statements that urged voters to expressly advocate for or against a candidate. And this concept becomes called express advocacy. So if something doesn't have the express uh, advocacy, like like, for example, right? Uh, Clear. These are clear statements of support or opposition to name candidates. Um, Otherwise, it can't be uh, vote for, vote against, you know, come out and vote on election day for whoever, like you're literally saying who you should support. If they're not doing those things, they're not express advocacy. If they're not, if they are not express advocacy, they are not inside of the purview of federal election campaign law, right? If they didn't actually do that, they're not in the purview of that law. They are part of our first amendment, right?
0: Even, even by the Supreme court's rendering of this law. Okay. So it's not splitting hairs to say that giving a donation for the express purpose of helping a candidate win is express advocacy, right? So express advocacy, you would find statements
1: or phrasing in there that's basically said that you were to take an act of support for the candidate.
0: Okay, got it. Yep. Those, Those right, little envelopes are, that come. Let me with, let me make a distinction.
1: So there are tons, tons of 501c groups out there who are coalitions of human beings that want to express themselves on an issue not a candidate but an issue yeah homelessness uh support for veterans yeah right so maybe you support the ACLU or maybe you support the NRA or maybe yeah. you support downsides dc or the zero aggression project by the way which doesn't speak up on issues but supports this show thank god they go to zeroaggressionproject.org and learn more about the zero aggression principle click the thank donate you. button Click the donate button, subscribe if you haven't done so before. One of the things they'll do is let you know every time we're running one of these episodes. Zeroaggressionproject.org. But you go to these, um, you 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 join one of these things, the ACLU, the NRA, Downsized DC, whatever it is you join, free association, you come together with a bunch of citizens, you don't disclose what you're giving to everybody else in the world, you keep that information uh, to yourself. If you want to share it, you do, but if you don't, you don't have to. And um, you participate in what we call political action, but it's not expressly political. It's not advocating the election or defeat of a candidate. Right, it's right. Saying, it's saying, a a bi- for example, a bill's coming up right now that really impacts us on abortion or guns or whatever, and we speak up on that piece of legislation. That is not express advocacy. It also is not express advocacy, coincidentally, to put out a voter's guide that says so-and-so voted for abortion rights, or voted for this bill involving abortion rights, so-and-so voted against it, right? These, these, This kind of activity done by educational groups is routine, and it's none of it is under the purview under current law. Now, Mr. Bragg might want to ruin it. A lot of people who hate Trump might want to ruin that, but it presently isn't under the law. Uh, it's not considered part of an election law. Only the express advocacy terms are. So you vote for, vote against, defeat, re-elect, and other clearly defined messages. These are kind of like safe harbors of knowing when yeah. something is about a campaign and when a somebody, specific act is being- Somebody made. called them magic words, right? Yes, in, in fact, literally the Supreme Court did. They've uh, okay. they, they, they have, they've used the term magic words and it's now part of the art in, in that uh, term of law, term of art in that field. Okay, in I that the bureaucratic domain.
0: So can I so, ask a question that's kind of like related yes. here? Yep. So I work for a campaign and I get a salary and I decide to give some of that salary to the candidate for whom I work, is that express advocacy? Am I in violation of the law in some way on that?
1: Well, as long as your contribution is under the limit, sure. uh,
0: 200 bucks, I don't know. Let's keep it simple.
1: Yeah. 200 bucks. You, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't okay. be, no, shouldn't uh, be. we're going to actually share a case where that may not have been the case where that rule may not have applied. Okay. Where the government may have hunted down somebody they really didn't like and and tried to turn this, but I don't want anybody in our audience confused. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's you, why I'm
0: asking the question because I want to figure out like you know where my yeah, responsibilities lie as a if contributor. you
1: swing open the door and make everything about elections, every activity that you can think of, where you're trying to express yourself or you're advancing some cause that you or value that you believe in, if you try to make all of that political. Then the government's already said we have the ability to protect our reputation, and if this becomes under that purview, then we all we're, our First Amendment rights are all limited. This, right. this it, is it, this has opened Pandora's box here.
0: Oh my gosh! They come after the Bill Parrotzman for my two hundred dollar <laughs> <Now>, contribution.
1: <laughs> now, how can I have to ask the question about the Trump case? Having laid this predicate after I've explained to you what express advocacy is, how can not influencing
0: being a legal act of influence. Oh my gosh, this really frosts my cake because you know, proving a negative, we're going back to that logic, that and or thing.
1: <laughs> so if You're information if information oh, was if information was withheld, if information was not shared, yeah, if also... somebody did not say out loud, vote for or vote against, if though if that didn't happen, if express advocacy didn't occur, how can it be an act of influence? Go back to our right. definition of influence. I'll read it to you again. Um, the, the expenditure, excuse me. Any purchase, payment, distribution, loan, advance, deposit, or gift of money or anything of value. So far, we've got Cohen and Trump in the in the basket, but then made for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office. And we said, What is influencing? We'll we explain it to you. It's 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 express advocacy. And if it's not express advocacy, it's not influencing, not in the campaign finance sense. None yes, of this smile, in the, nod, odd, wink, wink. None of that yes, stuff anymore. All this in the broad world, in the, def, the definition of influencing, we all have our own definition. It's plain English. But we're dealing with what is law here. And under yes. the law, it's only express
0: advocacy. Yep. And so that's back how, to the whole Watergate thing. Did you know about the tapes? Yes. You know, what, what, did you know about the missing 17 minutes, whatever it was, right? Okay. Now.
1: How can you expressly advocate the election or defeat of a candidate by not publishing something? Exactly. Right. Okay. How? To my knowledge, I've not heard this argument uttered anywhere else than Jeremiah Morgan, who shared it with me. This is this is obvious. And by the way, we're going to bring a guest on uh, our next episode who's going to talk about how he was targeted in part using these laws and how express advocacy rules were violated in his case too. And I have something sad to tell you. And something sad to tell him, his attorney didn't use this argument. Now, I don't know whether Trump will or not, but I'm telling you, I've told you something here. It is either the first time you will hear it or you will never hear it again, one or the other. And I know this because chances are you didn't read Jeremiah Morgan's article. Requisite intent. Let's cover this. Because this is the other issue, and the media is already covering this issue. They're asking, did Trump knowingly and willingly violate the law? I have a feeling this is going to be very, very hard. In libel cases, you have to basically show that you intended to destroy the reputation of another person. Right, right. Okay? So this case is similar here. And this case has been called novel. Novel as in new, unique, special, uh, a little strange, a little out in left field. Uh, they're real experimental. You get what I'm trying
0: to say here? Novel. this is the Bragg indictment.
1: Yes. Okay. And they're saying that because it's only been tried once in history. This approach has only been tried one at a time in history, and it was done to John Edwards, who was the who was running for president himself in 2008, and then ended up as a uh, he had been a running mate with, uh, um, John Kerry. Kerry. Yes. Yeah. In 2004, he was a Democratic nominee for vice president, and he had charges that were filed that were very similar to these, and he was acquitted on one of the charges, and the others had a hung jury, and they were ultimately dropped. The case wasn't pursued. So the, uh, the you've got a, the FECA has been around since the early 70s. We are talking 50 years as we're sitting here right now, and that's the only other case on record where uh, the idea that you would be paying hush money to a mistress, and in his case, his mistress had actually birthed his child, was tried. And Edwards made an argument that was considered compelling. He said, my wife is dying of cancer, and at the time that this happened, and I didn't want my wife to know. And that was all the defense he needed to make it go away. They could not show that he willingly, knowingly and willfully, that he had what was called requisite intent, that he didn't, the requisite intent was missing. So they're going to have to establish, and they may be able to do it. They have texts and testimony and and emails, and they may be able to put some things together to show that the requisite intent is there. But I want to tell you that everybody understands, people who even agree with this indictment, who support this indictment, they will all tell you that this is an uphill slog. And it explains why. The FEC passed on this. It explains why the Department of Justice passed on this. And it explains why Mr. Bragg's office initially passed on this before reviving this case recently. This is not easy to do. And is this this
0: the hook they're trying to get into Donald Trump so that they can pull the rest of the weight of all of the stuff they want to indict him? No, that's the that
1: is they have to get him, they have to show two, two things. They have to show that this was. Express advocacy. Now, what I'm going to in the next episode we're going to bring on a former congressman, and you're going to hear that they can that it's potential even with uh, instructions that are given to the jury from a judge to gloss over this distinction in law and make it you know hard for the jury to understand or see. So that that could happen in this case, which is why Donald Trump should be watching this show right now. Which is why Donald Trump's attorney should be watching this show right now. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not giving legal advice and I don't play one on television, but I can tell you, having taken a case all the way to US Supreme Court, having worked in in campaigns disadvantaged by this law, I have some knowledge of what I'm talking about. And this was not included in the case we're going to share in our next episode, and it should have been. But then you also, on top of that, have to show for that crime, you have to show for 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 these 34 indictments. That he was doing this to carry out a criminal conspiracy. He knew he had violated the law and he was violating the law for his campaign. They have to show those two things to get the conviction, the felony level conviction they're looking
0: for. You know, I don't know why Trump. That seems otherwise all those things are just misdemeanors bill. Otherwise all those things misdemeanors. The guy slides on so much. He can't have known in advance. I mean, I'm just speculating here, but. Well, I don't know. It's the you know, it's it's a federal election law. W-
1: it wouldn't surprise me in the least if he's on a text or an email or they've got a recording of a call or they've got witnesses, multiple witnesses who heard him at one time say, you know what? This is really all about my campaign. And if we if uh, if it wasn't for this campaign, I wouldn't even pay this. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he did something that incredibly stupid. It really that, would. That, that's enough right there, right? But it's not. They before they get to that point, they have to get over this express advocacy hurdle. If his gotcha. attorneys know what they're doing and if the judge is not corrupt. That's they gotta get they got to get through both
0: of those things. Okay, so
1: sorry for the diversion. Let's continue. Nope. That's a very it's it was an excellent set of questions. So let's wrap, let's wrap up with one more major argument. Here I'm turning to Brad Smith, someone else I happen to have a relationship with. Brad Smith was the chair of the Federal Election Commission. He continues to comment on these issues and he has followed this case and has been quoted on Fox News, the National Review and in Reason. Okay, so this is this is somebody who is of some prominence on this. Yep, And he says that uh, a candidate from uh, uh, diverting campaign funds to personal use. Personal use in turn is defined as any expenditure, quote, used to fulfill any commitment, obligation or expense of the person that would exist irrespective of the candidate's election campaign, end quote. These may not be paid with campaign funds, even if they are intended to influence the election. So in other words, he can't use his campaign's money. He can't use any campaign funds to pay off a blackmail claim or to buy hush or to do this uh, with the other case. uh, There's two cases involved here. One of them was headed to the National Enquirer, which acquired the article for him. They bought the rights to the story and then they killed the story. So they call this hunt and kill. Right, right. Okay. Uh, this money cannot be expended out of campaign funds. If it would, the FEC, that's another reason the FEC would be involved. The FEC is not involved because it wasn't done out of campaign funds. It was done out of other funds. Okay.
0: So um, it's, you, yes. again, this,
1: this is how hard time being a campaign finance violation because it was done out of other funds. And if, if you didn't do something out of campaign funds, you've got nothing to report to the FEC. You can't say, well, you should have reported this to the FEC. No, it's not. It doesn't matter. This existed irrespective. And so, that, so that's going to they're get right. Proving a negative again. So Smith goes on to explain TV ads, polling, hiring a campaign accountant to comply with federal laws and renting office space can all be examples that exist because the person is running for office. They are campaign expenses. Okay. Those are the types of things that normally a campaign would generate. They're new campaign expenditures. And that's why they go on an FEC report. Now, to reach the opposite conclusion, the U.S. Attorney has placed uh, would have back then he would have he was when he wrote first wrote this in 2018 would have to place all their chips. And this now applies to Bragg on the language quote for the purpose of influencing election end quote. Intuitively, however, we know that all such language cannot be read literally because for the past forty five years at the time now fifty uh, this has been a near constant violation. Can't, can't candidates defraud their donors all the time? They lie to the public all the time. When the when campaign expenditure is used for toothpaste, soap and clothing or the eat the Wheaties, uh eat Wheaties, uh, these because a candidate can't be on an empty stomach, these are not campaign expenses. They would exist irrespective. These are examples of things that would exist irrespective. So campaigns sure. yeah. cannot go out and buy a bunch of things for the candidate. He can't start making his personal bills the campaign's bills. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And they're going to essentially try to say, well, this this was actually a campaign expenditure, but it would have existed irrespective. And so they're going to have a hard time with this again, if this argument is made. Now, lastly, lastly, Mr. Cohen only has one and possibly two charges that involve Trump. He was originally charged with lots of charges and he made a deal. Those charges were unrelated to Trump. They were much more serious and they would have put him in prison for many, many years, the rest of his life, theoretically. Brad Smith, chairman of the FEC. This isn't me saying this. Brad Smith, the former chairman of the FEC said that the two things that Cohen pled to were non-crimes. And he was basically able to avoid the more real ones. So this shows that they were really out and targeting the candidate they really wanted to figure out how to get him something and they're going to have to put cohen on the stand and i i if his attorneys are worth the money he's paying them they will be able to deconstruct this if the judge permits it to happen the judge is the key here if the judge doesn't let them make their case then cohen might be able to convince the jury but my guess is He's actually going to perform badly for him. And he is definitely one of the two or three. I don't believe he's the number one witness. I believe the the number one witness is the uh, publisher of the National Inquirer that made a deal. Um, he will, he will be impeachable. But if let's say, Bill, let's just say that they still managed to win the case somehow, do you think there's any chance this case isn't going to the U.S. Supreme Court?
0: Oh, it's got to. Exactly.
1: And they're not going to be fooled by all the parlor tricks.
0: No, this is exhibit A for the federal election law right now. So I don't,
1: I don't, I can't, I can't guarantee anything because I don't know how the performers are going to perform. I don't know whether he'll do a good enough job making his case. I don't know if he'll sabotage his case. I haven't seen the evidence of his collusion and what he may have stupidly said behind the scenes. But here's my, my, my main point. All these campaign finance laws are unconstitutional. All these campaign finance laws violate the first amendment. They should not exist. The predicate that need is that the thing that they have to establish in order to turn all of these 34 counts, maintain them at the felony level is that this was done to cover up a crime for something that isn't a crime. And I mean that literally, like I believe that the entire federal election campaign act is unconstitutional and should not exist. And I would say this for a Democrat or a Republican because I'm arguing from principle. Let's just close with this. I believe that Schadenfreude is anti-grace. This shows grace, Archie. And what we talk about here is whether or not, um, we are trying to understand where other people are coming from. Now, if Donald Trump had actually defrauded somebody or harmed somebody, in a way that, that he owed them damages. There might be a civil case here, but I have a hard time seeing anything that's actually criminal. There might be some misdemeanors in his bookkeeping, but I don't see any felonies. If this needs the Federal Election Campaign Act to succeed, this is a raw deal. Now, you may not like him. This isn't about whether you'll like the man. I said that at the top. This isn't about whether or not you agree with his politics or you want to see him succeed or you want to see him go away or any of that other stuff. Ends and means matter. And so I'm going to say to you that if you're just cheering, you want to see the law torn down for schadenfreude. That's a really bad idea. It's not grace. Now, it's interesting. I would preach the same message to Donald Trump himself because in 2016, he walked around and said, how can anyone vote for Hillary with an FBI investigation on her back? Right. Yes.
0: Yes. And by the way, I
1: actually believe her crimes are more serious than the ones, any of the ones that they're accusing Donald Trump of. Uh, having to do with the, all the messages she erased, those were not her property. She didn't have the right to have those on an outside server, just like Donald Trump didn't like have a right to have documents in his home. Yeah. Same deal. And Joe Biden, too, and and Mike Pence didn't have, they can't have those documents in their home. So she she shouldn't have had those on a private server. And she certainly shouldn't have been able to erase and bleach that server. That had government information on it. Those files didn't belong to her; they were not her property. But, but, she didn't. Nothing happened to her. And after the election was over, in fairness to Trump, he said, "Ah, you know, it was just campaign rhetoric." He said it literally the first week he was in office or elected, not even in office yet. Eh, we're not going to be going after Hillary. But he he kept saying, "Lock her up, lock her up, lock her up." And now he finds himself in that very same dock, schadenfreude, and it's not gracious it's and not it's grace. wrong. And this is what the political process does to people's brains. It makes them ungracious. So let's try to have some balance here. But there's a bigger problem because I know that there's people that's going to be sucked into this process. And this is where I want to close. Brad Smith brought this, reminded me of this. And and Robert book, Bork closes his book with this very same idea. It's from A Man for All Seasons by uh, it's Sir, Sir Thomas Moore's uh, future son-in-law Roper states that he would cut down every law in England if it would enable him to catch the devil. And this is Moore's response. And when that last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow them? Yes, I'd give the devil the benefit of the law for my own safety's sake.